All right, thank you all for for coming this morning. Uh, Before we get started, uh, let's go before God in prayer. Father Almighty, we give thanks uh, to you for everything that you've done for us. We thank you that you are the one who who loves us and who has made covenants with us, not for your own good, Lord, but for ours. As we learn about you and about all the things you have done, uh, we ask that you would guide us, that you guide the meditations of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds, that it might be glorifying to you and that we might come to know you and who you are deeper and deeper. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so a little bit of review from last week. Um, last week we talked about covenants in general. Right? We talked about uh, the fact that covenants are common, that they are all around us, even though we don't call them covenants anymore. Um, but everything from citizenship right, to having a bank account, um, marriage especially, we talked about as these are examples of covenants that we all take part in um, constantly, like every day. A couple of the things that we hit on uh, that we really wanted to emphasize was the fact that covenants are both legal and relational. They're not either or, right? It's not only a legal contract, um, but neither is it simply a a relationship. Um, You can get into problems if you call them only legal or only relational. But, for example, right, the marriage covenant. There are legal parts of it, right? There's legal aspects to it. You're making vows. You're making promises. There are consequences if you don't make them. There are witnesses involved. Um, There's legal parts of this. And yet, you would not call a marriage a legal union. You'd call it a relationship. Um, And the covenant only strengthens that relationship because it helps provide the boundaries. It provides the expectations. It provides the the structure um, and the, the firmness of it. Uh, another thing that we that we hit on, right? If the first thing that we hit on, covenants are relational and legal. The second is, generally speaking, how God does covenants is uh, different from how the world does covenants. We talked about last week how the world, generally speaking, right, almost exclusively makes covenants that are mutually beneficial. Everybody does things for their own good, and this is normal. This is expected, right? Nobody really does things purely out of the goodness of the heart for someone else without any benefit to themselves. God does that, right? The Lord doesn't need uh, He doesn't need people, right? He doesn't need glory or honor or wealth or tribute or any of these things, um, and yet. He makes covenants with his people so that they might be blessed. And he actually gives himself in covenant. That it's not simply a a binding contract, but a contract where he explicitly says, I will be yours, even as you are mine. So when we look at the world's covenants, right, we see conditionality. We see... um, people doing things for their own benefit, and they can be good, right? They can be mutually beneficial. They can bring peace. And yet, the Lord, uh, generally speaking, right, not exclusively, but he makes gracious covenants, covenants that are um, for the benefit of the other person, that he freely does this, not for his own good, but for someone else's. And not that God never makes conditional covenants. We'll talk about that later. Um, but as we start this journey into covenant theology, right, we're not starting from the basis of, well, God does things just like the world. We're starting from covenants in general. How does God do covenants? How have we seen God do covenants throughout all of Scripture? So I wanted to start today 
um, as we begin talking about covenants in Scripture, uh, we're going to start at the beginning. In fact, we're actually going to start before the beginning. Um, because at Genesis 1, when God had created everything, there was actually a covenant already in existence. That before God spoke light into existence, he had already made a covenant. Before time even existed. And we call this covenant the covenant of redemption. Because this covenant is the blueprint of our salvation. But Isaac, you're asking, that there was nobody else around before the existence of the world, so who did God make this covenant with? Well, thank you for asking that question. It's a great question. The answer is that this question was made within the Trinity. That God and himself, the three persons of the Trinity, made a covenant together. And we call this the covenant of redemption, that it's, it's this covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's start taking a, a look at some scripture passages that start to talk about a, a covenant that seemingly did not exist, or seemingly existed before the world was even founded. Um, so turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, this is a psalm of David, um, but it's quoted in the New Testament referring to Jesus, and it um, has some explicit references that we're going to look at in a second. So Psalm 110. I'll read, uh, I'll read the first um, four verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your, of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So i got a couple questions for you guys. Who is this psalm talking about? Okay. How do you know? Because it says, the Lord said to my Lord. Right. Yeah, because this is a Psalm of David, right? So who is he talking about? He's talking about not himself. He's actually speaking a Psalm that's about someone over him. That the Lord, God, is saying to someone else who's also over David, another Lord, here is what I will do for you. Right, the Lord God is saying, here's what I will do for you. You will sit at my right hand. Right? I will establish your kingdom, your rule. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely. And then verse 4 is, is particularly note, noteworthy. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what does this passage teach us about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? What do we learn about their relationship? They were working together from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were working together. In fact, you see elements of some sort of fulfillment of a promise and also an explicit promise, right, in verse 4. That God the Father swears something to God the Son. Now, what do we call it when people make vows and oaths and promises uh, that are binding? A covenant. A covenant. <laughs> right? 
This, this shows us that there's a covenantal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That God the Father had also had promised things to God the Son. And specifically, right, verse 4 is, is the most clear that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. When did God make this oath? In eternity past. I mean, it's not recorded for us in Scripture anywhere. Right? We have to assume that God the Father had made this oath uh, before Genesis. That before the world came into existence, God had already sworn what he will do for his son. So why did God make this oath? I think it has to do with the subordination of Christ to the Father in the incarnation. And I didn't know this promise is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you're making the biggest sacrifice eternity has ever seen. And so I'm letting you know this is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, the Lord is guaranteeing, God the Father is guaranteeing to God the Son that He will not change His mind. Here's what will happen for God the Son. And maybe it sounds weird, right? It's, it's hard to keep it all straight sometimes when we're talking about the Trinity because it's, it's one God but three persons who are, who are in a covenantal relationship with each other. That God the Father is, is promising that God the Son will set at His right hand, right, in a place of power, and that he will also be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What role and function did a priest have? What did priests do? Yeah, they were intermediaries. They were, I mean, you just say they're mediators. They're mediators of the covenant between God and between the people. So what this shows us is actually that there is, there is this covenant that God the Father and God the Son have that is going to be mediated by the Son. That the Son is going to take up this role as a priest in order to mediate this covenant to God's people. So already we're starting to see that... that Whatever this covenant is between the Father and the Son, it has implications for God's people because it includes God the Son and His role as a mediator for God's people. And not just right, as a temporary priest, like in the, the times of Moses, He's going to be a priest forever. That the covenant that is being established is eternal and everlasting, and God won't change His mind about it. So we're starting to see right, that this covenant that the Trinity has made it involves us somehow. And we're going we're gonna to find out more as we look into other passages. So uh, turn to Isaiah 53. This is another important passage. And it shows us even more clearly the things we're learning. So I'm going to read a few verses um, scattered throughout. I'm sorry, I'm going to read verse 3 uh, and 4 and 5, and then I'll read, read, verse of, uh, read verses 10. So uh, Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Then verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see any any covenantal elements in this passage? If so, what are they? Do you see any... What covenantal um, elements do you see in this passage? Matthew? He's bearing the punishment for our having broken it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's bearing punishment for sins. Yeah, he's willing to take on death, his own death, right, for the sake of us. Was this an accident? Now, verse 10 says, this was the will of God. Right, that this is not an accident, this was not a, a whoopsie or a plan B, that this was the plan all along. So what that tells us, right, is that from at, at, from Genesis and even before Genesis, this was what the Lord was laying out. Because this is a prophecy pointing forward to the future that God is saying, I have already planned to do this. Right? This was this is my will, is to send my son to go die for my people's sins. Um, so that tells us, right, that God had always been planning this. That this was the will of the Lord. That he had actually made a plan. <laughs> And that the son willingly submitted himself to this plan. So the covenantal elements are that there is obedience involved, right? The son promises to do this thing. And that there's a reward. Right? Verse 10 says, it's the will of the Lord to crush him. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Basically, there's, there's obedience, and then there's a reward for obedience. That's, that's covenants, right? Here's what I promise I will do, and here are the blessings for when we obey the promises, right? When we, when we are faithful to the promises, good things happen. And covenants say, here's all the good things that will happen if you obey, and here's all the bad things that will happen if you don't. So this, this covenant between the Father and the Son involved the Son promising obedience, the Father promising reward, and that this was the will of God all along for Him to die for our sins. And that's important, right? Because it shows us that God was planning for our salvation. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 says, The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Yeah. Our election in him is, is the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's another, there's another passage that makes it all the more clear that Jesus was willingly submitting himself to this plan. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, but it's in John 5. And Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And in verse 36, he says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father has given him works to do. Jesus willingly does them, and they prove that he is sent by the Father. So already we're starting to get a a picture of, of what this covenant looks like. The Father sends Jesus. He sends the Son. He gives him a work to accomplish. The Son says, I will do it. And when he does, it results in blessing. Not only for him, because Ephesians 1 says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This covenant between the Trinity involves the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father gives him the work to do, the Son does it, and it results in our salvation. The plan that that, that the Trinity laid out before the world was founded involved you. Which is bonkers. As soon as you start to think about it, your brain starts to hurt. But this covenant that has existed before the world even was founded involves us and our salvation, and that God had already purposed and planned it out perfectly. Charlie, I saw your hand. Would, would it be fair to say that the covenant of redemption is the covenant that orders history? Meaning what? I mean, the language we're using reminds me of Peter talking about how they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And even in Psalm 110, as you're reading, implicit in that covenant are the enemies of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right, sit by my right hand until I put your enemies under your, your feet. So in the covenant of redemption is not only our salvation, but it's the destruction of the enemies of God. So God is talking about enemies before he acted in creation. So would the covenant of redemption itself be sort of the covenant of history? That this is how the story is going to go. There will be a fall. There will be enemies. But out of those enemies, I will bring you a people, and you will save them. So is it the covenant that is ordaining all things that come to pass? Because the Father is himself working these things out. You rest until I punish your enemies. Um, I think it's probably fair to say. I think... When you start talking about, you know, before time existed, like, things get a little, a little screwy because there's no temporalness. Like, we can only think in temporal aspects, right? We, could th- we can think in terms of logical, what's the word? Logical sequences. Mm-hmm. Not right. right, not temporal, but the Lord would have done things in a logical order. Um, I think the covenant of redemption focuses explicitly on the elect, because that's that's what it seems when we look at scripture. Right? We don't we don't get this 
this thesis on what the covenant of redemption is. We, we see it throughout different passages, right? We've looked at four different passages that, that draw different elements, right? That clue us into what the Lord has done before he even had created. Um, God's focus in the covenant of redemption is on his elect. But it also includes his enemies, though, right? As stated in Psalm 110. It would include that, right? But you don't... The, the way that the Reformed people typically talk about it is you have election, but then when you talk about God's enemies, they're not, they're not chosen to be enemies, right? Because when the Lord is looking at all of humanity in their sinful estate... He's not saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to save you. He's saying, I'm going to save you and you and you. And everyone else, by implication, is, is not saved. That election is, is choosing out of sinful humanity. That it, it's not that, you know, we, we were just subject arbitrarily to the whims of God. That God has said, well, you're going to be destroyed and you're going to be saved. We all deserve destruction. We all deserve that death. It's just that God in his grace has said, I will save some. That's the focus, I think, of the covenant of redemption. That includes the enemies, right? And what will happen to his enemies because Jesus didn't die for everybody's sins. He died for the sins of his people and for those who would believe in his name. And that offer is free to everyone, right? Everyone has extended the offer of the gospel, um, but not everyone will take it. Because the only, the only thing that makes somebody take God's offer of the gospel is God's grace to begin with. So I, I just think it's, it's different focus than the enemies are in view, but in a, the main focus of the covenant is what is God going to do with his elect, with his chosen people? And that's, that's the main focus of the decrees of God. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a good question. Yeah. So, so it's hard for me not to wonder how the fall figures into things because if from the foundation of the world that we can save these people, then he must have figured in the, the fall. Of course. And so he knew that we were going to disappoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll you'll not be surprised to learn that people have tried to very hard, right, to to find ways to explain. And there's there's a couple of different views, even within reform circles, um, about where in the logical order of God's decrees does the fall fit in, right? Does God say does God elect and then decree the fall, or does He decree the fall and then decree the elect? Like, what logical order does it come in? Personally, I don't think that's helpful or useful or meaningful. The, the meaningful thing is, like, for, for, yes, the Lord decreed that the fall would happen. And that doesn't mean, right, that he imposed that, that Adam didn't have a choice. Adam and Eve had choices. Like, they could have chosen to obey, and they didn't. And the Lord in his providence knew that. And for his own glory, purposed it so that this whole plan of redemption would be revealed. 
because the main thing we have to hold is, is what is God's character? Right? You can't talk about covenants without talking about God's character. As soon as you start to talk about it in like, well, that doesn't seem fair, right? Why would God allow Adam to fall? Why would God want people to be destroyed in hell? Like, remember his character. Remember that he's just and that he's good, that he's kind, but that he's also wrathful against his enemies. That when human beings choose against him, that's their choice. And he he is understood it from all eternity, but it's still the, the the guilt lies with them and not with God. It's it's hard, I know. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, I just want to understand it, but I know it's hard. Yeah. I think it's 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 a good question. And for me it's it's always okay, what is God's character and let's start from there. Because as much as that might feel uncomfortable, I have to believe that God is good first. That he is just and that everything, that he's perfect. And that means that even if I don't understand it, like everything he does is perfect. That there's no fault or sin in him. I think we have to narrow mind, its mindset about that. We think it's all about us in the, this world. Remember, Satan had already, Lucifer, whatever, had already existed before the world was even created. God has got to rectify that rebellion too. So it's more than just about us. It's taking care of that business as well. Sure. I would would probably not say that Satan existed before the world existed. I think he was probably created with the world as, yeah... He's not an eternal being, um, not like God. But you're right. Like there was, it's part of the, the difficulty, right? That God planned for Satan to rebel and to tempt Adam and Eve, and for Adam and Eve to fail and sin and bring righteous destruction. But it's also His plan to then save. People and not not a few people, right? One of the common uh, criticisms of of Calvinism, of election, of all these things is, well, it just sounds like God is super arbitrary to save only a small number of people. Um, it's easy to forget that God has actually saved like, you know, how many billions of of people? Like, not a, not a small amount. We don't know the exact number, but from all from the beginning of history, right? God has been saving. People for, and who knows how many? A countless number, right? Revelation talks about this this countless number of the, of the saints who are in heaven. Like, who knows how many? We shouldn't get stuck on. Well, he didn't save everybody, so therefore is God bad? It's it's just amazing that he saved anybody, and even more so that he saved lots, lots and lots and lots. Jonathan, you have a. Take that view of, oh, why didn't God save everybody? Whenever someone tries to tries to retrofit the view in there of how God could save everybody, you're basically creating. You end up having to put something in there that is prior to God, and, and it's basically just stepping, in for, stepping above God. And, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know better than God. If God had only consulted me when he was making this plan, it would have been way better. <laughs> right? It, yeah, Michelle? Was it R.C. Sproul who wrote about if how much more we see God's love because Jesus went to the cross and we see that redemption, how much it really cost? Whereas if there hadn't been a fall, we wouldn't have seen his love to that extent. Yeah, that might have been Sproul or, or someone else, but sounds great. <laughs> No, I, and that's that's one of the things that the reformers have hit over and over and over again is that this actually enhances our view of God and His love and His grace. Like we wouldn't know the depths of His mercy without sinners for Him to have mercy on. Like we know God way better because of the fall, and I mean it's it's hard. But it's the realities of sin that we have to come face to face with and and reconcile the fact that we're not God. As much as we may think we know better, we don't. And this was the perfect plan. God couldn't have done it in a better way. G. I'm thinking if it wasn't for the fall, then our love and praise for God would have been robotic type attitudes rather than heartfelt attitudes. Sure. You're saying that there wouldn't be as as deep a gratitude? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, we'll we'll get into the the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, right? But the the failure of that covenant and God's immediate grace... (laughs) That's that's what deepens our well of gratitude is because we see how how much God has really done. And the fact that he's that he planned it, right, it should only deepen our awe of him. That he wanted to have mercy and grace and he wanted to show us and teach us about that. And so he he perfectly planned it all out. Causes you to wonder. Think about it in about election. Why me? Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to bring praise and thanks. Yeah. Um, let's let's go through a couple more um, questions before we close our time about the covenant of redemption. Um, so, in this covenant, this is in. In this covenant that the God the Father and the God the Son and the God the Holy Spirit made, um, what role does the Father play in this covenant? Like, what what is his what, what responsibilities does he assume in this covenant? Joe he gives uh, people the Son. Okay, yeah, namely election. Right, he he's the one who elects. Charlie, I think I saw your hand. Oh, yeah, he decrees. He decrees. Yeah, he's the one who establishes the plan. What else? Jesus talked about it in John 5. He's the one that sent, sent the Son. Yeah. He's the one who told the Son what to do. Can you think about how tough that must have been. Here's an equal God, triune God, and, and he says, you go. Yeah. Why me? He didn't say that. Not why me? He said, thank you, Lord. Let's have it done. Well, and, and think about think about the fact that Christ 
gave up his own will. Right? He's equal with God. Right? And yet he humbly said, not my will, but yours. Like from the beginning, before time existed, Jesus had already covenantally you know, um, subjugated himself to the Father. Not because he had to, not because he had been like that for all of eternity. Um, we're not Arians, Arians, but he willingly said, "I will follow your will." Like that's that's Philippians two, right? Is that he humbled himself, he emptied himself, he gave up um, his his glory willingly, and became a, a human. He had already agreed to do that before God created the world. So that's, you know, what role does the son play? Well, he, he does it. He does the thing. He's the one who will be incarnated. He is the one who will reveal the Father. He is the one who will be that mediator of the covenant. Right? He's that one who will be the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, there's also 1 Timothy 2.5 that says about Jesus, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Yeah, I think... I think the roles of the Father and the Son are, are pretty well established. Um, but the tricky part is, okay, so what does the Spirit do? Right? We're Trinitarians. We believe there's three persons of the Trinity. What does the, what does the Spirit of God do in the covenant? Steve? Steve's sitting up there. You, you guys are wearing the same color shirt, and you have the same beard and the same color hair. Need my glasses. Sorry, Sean. Spirit applies the Lord's son. What does that mean? Can Can you repeat that? He said. Sean said that. Or sorry, Steve said that um, the Spirit applies the work of the Son. Is the new guy giving you problems? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This visitor comes in, thinks he knows everything. <laughs> so, yeah, what does it mean that the Spirit applies the work of the Son? It's a good question. He expects salvation. Meaning what? He gives his, his life to us and for us to um, come to Christ. How? And by providence, he opens the eyes of all the elect to see who they are in relation to God and who Christ is. Yeah, we call that regeneration. How does how does the Spirit apply the work of Christ to us? He regenerates us. He gives us faith. He's actually the one. He is the driving force of adoption. Because Paul will say, right, we are given a spirit of adoption by whom we say, Abba, Father. That the Spirit is the one who Christ is the one who accomplishes. And the Spirit is the one who applies all of those benefits right to you. Right? In regeneration, in washing, in sanctification, and adoption. All these things are the work of the Spirit in your life. So when we think about your sanctification, when we think about your walk with God and the fact that you're regenerated, that's the work of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is active. One of the complaints that... Um, not, not this, um, what are they called? Charismatics have of, you know, the Reformed people is, well, they don't have any doctrine of the Spirit. Right? They don't talk about the Spirit ever. Well, no. We have a, a really good doctrine of the Spirit. We believe He is active from the moment that you are 
and regenerated till the end of your life, regenerating you, sanctifying you, working your life. Like, we don't need tongues and outward signs to see the Spirit working, to see Him active in our lives. All we have to do is look at our sanctification or our faith or the fact that we're, we're not the same people anymore to know that He has been working in our lives. Charlie, did I see your hand? Yeah, I was just going to say that the, that the regeneration is, is the spirit of God. Like, he is on the, on the business of restoration. He's restoring that affection and honor of God, which was present in Adam pre-fall, but is perfected in Christ and his obedience and the life that he lived. It was gone. We lived lives that sought to rebel, dishonor, revile God even. And not, not, not love him in, in any way, shape, or form, but to think highly and solely of ourselves and what we gain from our actions. Um, but the regeneration is is the restoration of that love, that affection, yeah. which seeks action. Um, it's not just abstract. It's, it's a willing in and of itself. That's why the fruit of the Spirit are called the fruit of the Spirit. Right. We don't have them apart from the Spirit of God. The scriptures say that we can't even call Christ Lord apart from the Spirit in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, as as children in the house and subjects of the kingdom, all, all the things that we do that look like obedience to faith are because the Spirit indwells us and quickens us to these things. Right. Yeah, I think that was really well said. The Spirit is the one who works all that faith, works the fruit of the Spirit, in a sense returns us to what we're supposed to be, but even better, right? Because Adam and Eve weren't complete. They weren't perfect because they still had the ability to sin. Even though they had the ability to obey, they could have sinned, and they did. The Spirit is the one who is now making us to be not like Adam and Eve, but actually like Christ. Perfect, sinless, unable to sin. Like that's the goal that we're headed towards. We won't get there in this life, but the Spirit is the one who will bring us there at the end of our lives. So when we talk about you know the covenant of redemption, because we're Trinitarian, right, we see that God is working, every person of the Trinity is working for our salvation. That The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all intimately and closely involved with our salvation. That, to me at least, that just deepens my awe of it. That, you know, it wasn't two of them were working and one was like, eh, whatever. Two of them were like, oh yeah, Isaac's great, let's save him. And the third was like, he's fine. You know, not bad. Now, all three were saying, we're going to save Isaac. We're going to save you and all of you because love. Every person of the Trinity loved you and does love you and will love you. So why is this important? Why is this covenant of redemption important? Why do we talk about it? This is the blue, like I said at the beginning, this is the blueprint of our salvation. Which means that the covenant that we have with God is structured and based upon this covenant that God made before time existed. 
What else? Yeah. Everything that we believe comes from this, and the fact that we believe it all comes from this. Was our salvation a plan B? It was plan A, and there was no plan B. Does this comfort you at all? How so? marriage covenant, right, we, we are unified to this triune God who is purposed from eternity to save us. Think of it like this. Um, are you all the same people you were five years ago? Probably not. Are you in the same life situation that you were five years ago? Or has your life changed constantly? Right? Is your life going to change in five years? Yeah. Like, in the short term of our lives, like, life is like, you know, super topsy-turvy. Like, it's constantly shifting and changing. The ground that we stand on is sand. It's, it's always different every day. Like, we, we never know what tomorrow will hold. So the comforting thing, at least for me, is that if God planned this before eternity, he's not going to change his mind tomorrow. He's not going to suddenly change like the rest of my life changes. The covenant is not going to simply change its terms tomorrow just by the whims of fate. Like, if God planned this from eternity, that means he intended it from eternity, and he's not going to change his mind now. He's not going to suddenly decide tomorrow, oh, wait, actually, I don't want to save you anymore. Oh, wait, you sinned for the 50th time? Well, that's your limit. No more salvation for you. No. He saw all of your sin. And he still planned it. Still planned to save you. Not because of you, but because of him. And if he planned it for eternity, it will last for eternity. He's not going to change his mind. So that's, that's at least for me, what is comforting is that, well, it's, it's a good thing that I can't change it. That I can't change God's covenant. Any final thoughts or questions or complaints? Jesus said that all the Father gives me will come to me, and no one who comes to me. Uh, again, the one who comes to me I will no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given to me, I should lose nothing. That's such a comfort when you know you've blown it a millionth time that if you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever. Amen. Well, unless there's any other...
Okay. Um, let's let's close our time with prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us, not because we are strong or numerous or better, but simply out of your grace. Jesus, thank you for saving us, for dying on the cross for us. And Spirit, thank you for regenerating us, giving us faith and opening our eyes that we might see who you are. Father, we thank you again. May you teach us these things more and more every day, and may you grow us to be more like Jesus and bring us into your presence. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.